Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the CTO Fellows podcast. And together with me, I have today Camila and Dennis, who are both here, muted at the moment, as far as I can see. Hello. <laughs> so, hi, hi. Um, yeah, I was really looking forward for that one because this is basically a new type of series we do. Many of you in the audience already probably know us from joining stage together on Dennis stream. And with that one here, we want to have a little bit of a contrast to that. So more the, let's say, soft topics or cultural types. So what I do as a CTO actually, and that's the reason why it's called CTO Fellows Podcast. And um, it's all about the higher level topics. And we want to actually help companies to get over the challenges, enabling them. And this is actually what Dennis is doing too. So we want to join together to actually do this. And we have not the first time. So when you followed us in the past recordings we had with Mark Jonathan Scholz, you may remember Camilla as well. She's working together with me in WebBar. And she will assist us as co-host and will join us every Wednesday and yeah, assist us and support us. And next week, for example, we have the topic about well-being in software development. And this is then definitely a topic uh, where, where she can definitely participate, I can say. And the reason why I ask her to join us is I talk quite often about continuous learning and how people should enhance themselves, try to get better every day. And I really can say Camilla is one of those persons. And this is, yeah, the reason I just want to have it here, here as well. Just for a brief introduction, maybe for you both, maybe Camilla, could you quickly introduce yourself, what you do, and then pass the word over to Dennis so that the audience knows ourselves, knows us a little bit better. Sure thing. So first of all, I work with Adrian. This was my first job as a front-end developer and I'm very thankful for that because as Adrian said before, something that I've really learned while working together is this type of always continuous learning, always checking what else can you do, how can you improve things. And I think this is something that is very important as well for junior developers. Even if you are like scared of, I don't know, talking about architecture or big things, you shouldn't. You should just still check and learn more and see how can you also be helpful in the company for this. So yeah, that's me. I'm still working there. I'm very happy about this and I'm happy to see you in the next streams as well. Thanks. <laughs> Dennis. And, and I'm Dennis. I've been streaming with Adrian for a while now and I train, I, I help tech leaders in strategy and tactics, especially in the areas of how to lower the risk of their teams, whatever that risk is. Some, usually it makes them more accurate or more reliable or just more confident. So I, I bring together, unlike an agile coach, I actually bring together life coaching. And so traditional non-technology based life coaching with my background in almost 20 years now in, in the tech industry, starting off mostly as a backend engineer. So that's where most of my architecture knowledge is, is, is focused on. But nowadays, that's a little bit murky with all the coaching that's happening. And I really can say that you, you said 20 years of experience. And uh, I really like talking to you because of that. Every time when we uh, quickly go for a, let's say, uh, some kind of briefing in the evening where we say, ah, let, let's take us, let's take 15 minutes and talk about the next days to come. <laughs> we end up uh, talking two hours about anything and everything, <laughs> but not about this topic. And yeah. then ah, we need to talk about this now. And it's quite, it's quite funny to just talk with someone with such a, a seasoned career 
you can learn a lot. And I believe in learning. I still try to become better every day. And this is the reason why we actually create content, writing articles, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and we believe in that. And first of all, thank you for the introduction for you, for your birth. And quickly to just, we have some more people now on the stream. And I really like to, to again, push why we are doing this here right now. So this is basically about the audience. Let's say it's about the audience. We focus our articles, our posts way more on the audience. And those live streams shall be your chance to speak with us, to yeah. give us feedback, first-hand feedback, and tell us what you think, if you agree with us, if you don't agree with us, give us some information about what you think. And this is very important for us because we want to know, align ourselves and what we do with you in order that we basically make those mini conferences every week and the both audiences can merge together. So feel free to even connect with other in the audience, say hello in the chat, just tell everyone you are there, invite them to connect with you speak with them. If someone is passing a comment, you don't need to wait for us that we answer that. So you already can in that moment, answer it or help others out and connect. So we are all here on LinkedIn to connect. And what we are doing, so what are we going to do actually today? It's about migration. So about legacy migration. So we had that topic already last week in the stream of Dennis, where we talked about loose coupled architectures. And the thing is, that we came in, in, in this episode, we were talking a lot about, let's say, yeah, the, the practical parts. And we came, always came to this idea and conclusion that we, we, we're talking actually about migration. So the, 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 the point from getting from uh, tightly coupled things to loosely coupled things was always the idea of migrations. And we said, okay, there's more to migrations, more to legacy migrations than just the tightly coupled aspects. There are a lot of things on the code area, on the business side, and we just want to give this topic an entire episode. So this is why we are here together. And uh, maybe uh, to just start with something, let's say soft. Dennis, can you provide us a living example of your past regarding a migration, maybe a strangler fig pattern, which is one of the mm -hmm. uh, topic things, but just give us some input, what your experience is there in this case. He told me this wouldn't be an interview. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, so we, we talked backstage about what examples to start off with. And the two I picked is, I remember my very first modernization effort in, in this way it was almost 15 years ago. It was very early on in my career. It was a like an old PHP app. And ironically, I one of the most recent examples I had is also another PHP app. It's just that there's 10 years apart in technologies. Just to give you context, back then I didn't know that microservices didn't exist. JSON was not used as a primary data format on the web back then. Just for context about how old we are. <laughs> Ajax back then. You still look, uh, look young, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you. Ajax back then was every developer's favorite cleaning product. So it was, it was a wild, it was the time of wild west. Security wasn't course, wasn't the thing. So back then we didn't do strangler fix because the, the industry was just moving too slowly. You could rely on all technology to not surpass your project. And that's no longer the case. Any developer that I've seen. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to go into much on a tangent. My first example with strangle fix, like the, one of the first ones I did was we had some homegrown framework. Uh, it, it was optimized for a very specific use case, usually reads, 
aggressive caching. And then we had a client where I had a write heavy use case. Like once a year, I had a write heavy project and it just didn't fly well. And we always said, okay, if we're not using the framework, we're losing all these benefits. And if we are using it, then this critical thing just can't be done. Can I go around the framework just for this one thing? Mm -hmm. Can I somehow not separate it into a separate project, but can I make it adjacent? So I strangle this part that doesn't work well and replace it with something that is a good fit for this problem and then make it play with the old system. And that was my first match with the strangle flick. I didn't know that this is what it was called. I didn't know what I was doing. I was sort of trying to figure things out as I went. And now the most recent thing is, the most recent example is with the team I'm coaching, they're doing strangle fix all over the place because they have multiple generations of applications. So it's like a distributed monolith, a few actual microservices, but it, it, it's a 10 year old code base. It's changed like seven different generations of engineering teams and engineering departments and different forms of leadership. And all of that code is still there and it's interconnected in a few main topologies. And whatever has highest change frequency right now is often touching some part of that critical system. So whenever we have to add something that touches on a critical system, we now, I help them in the implement strangle fig on and saying, okay, this service or this domain or this bounded context, if they use domain driven design terminology is very specific. It's on the critical path. It's touching something old on the critical path that needs to be modernized because it's valuable and we are, we actually want to add features to it while also maintaining the old system. And we don't want to, you know, we, what, what, what are we doing? What is the risk? The risk is if I don't want to break it, I need to use the old technology, but the old technology is so old that I, I now have better alternatives that if I don't use, I will be slower just to reduce risk, but going slower also increases risk. So I have this risk problem of if I use the old technology, it's less risky and more risky, but if I use the new technology, I run the risk of having to upgrade and migrate everything. So mm -hmm. the, the middle ground here is a strangle fig where you say, I'm going to gradually incrementally modernize the critical path so that I can cooperate with it from a modern context. So I de-risk all the sort of the surface area of the problem. Mm -hmm. And this, both of these examples, ironically, were in a PHP environment, PHP shop. Go focus back then Java, Hadoop, PHP, and like a big multinational enterprise. And this is now a startup slash scale up with PHP, Go, and JavaScript, TypeScript, etc. Et Your typical stack for this kind of industry in e-commerce B2B that's, that's already an interesting aspect. A strangler fig pattern is nothing you do once. It's more um, in, in your experience is something you basically see all the time in a company. So once you have reached a certain age, I would say, you gather up some, let's say some finished applications, mm -hmm. they get older, you got the need to start to migrate them on some point, and mm -hmm. then you, you start to have multiple migrations actually running at the same time. So could you say in that? Um, yes. That's that some developers are actually only doing migrations in the area, or is it like... Actually, that's not a problem because in a way, adding a feature is a migration from one state to another. If I look at the, the state of the project on a timeline, I'm just mutating what the project is capable of. And now if you call that a migration or not, that's not mm -hmm. a migration specifically is what I would call 
a, a mutation in implementation without adding new behavior. But that, that's not really important. What's really important is the modernization that happens along with adding a new feature to some old system. But that's not, I wouldn't call that a migration. What, what, what we are migrating is some part of the infrastructure, but the application is actually being modernized. So it's not moving, it is mutating in, it's getting younger. You know, if, if, I, if it's, it's becoming less obsolete. Now, the problem nowadays that we're solving with the strangle fig is that uh, with the legalities, the bureaucracy and the regula regulatory requirements have increased and accelerated significantly. So for certain security audit, government audits for any kind of public or semi-public funded projects um, or privacy, or especially in the EU with GDPR, and now the, the new one with the, with the, for the platforms, it escapes me right now. For social media platforms, the audits are such that usually a part of the audit says that you cannot use, that it is not recommended that you use end-of-life software. So end of life used to mean it's less than 10 years old, but nowadays end of life software is being rolled out so fast that mm -hmm. some, some things are not LTS, not long-term, but they have, they don't have long-term support, but we just keep using bleeding edge and then they have end of life in 16 months or in 12 months. So it's very possible that you start a project, you start a prototype, and by the time you're finished and you actually create market demand, it actually end of life. So that if you don't have a new microservice, it's possible that you will say, oh, of course, I have a, I'm having a new microservice. I will not add the end of life version of the software. I will add the part of the software that is the latest stable. And that's how you, that's how you create this problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to alleviate with this. It's interesting. That's totally different from what I know from our side. And when we helped other companies, so we have that in our company in the company I was beforehand, which we still actually work together as one company, but everywhere was it like, you really have this 10, 15 years old thing, which yeah. grew and grew. And actually it's one thing, it's multiple things. Let's say multiple application gathered up to one application. This is what I can, this typical big ball of mud thing, uh, where you just, you know, you put something onto it in order to get new features out. And they definitely have this stagnation. We have mm -hmm. talked about this horror story stuff stagnation, endangered business, uh, stress everywhere, frustrated people, frustrated stockholders, bad communication happens because of that. And uh, we face that. So this is when someone tells me, oh, we need to do a migration. What comes to my mind is my nightmare of the past. Right? It's all about the nightmares. And yeah, so it's interesting to see that others see the strangler fig pattern as something which is actually being part of the ongoing process in the company. So in my head, you go for migration and afterwards so you are you are, you, you are in a continuous delivery mode then yeah. and by that it with together with the uh, quality of substitutability which i was writing about as well i was speaking about and you actually be able to evade the legacy trap the legacy dead end uh, in the future this is the, te the theory of course uh, okay. but um yeah so this is my idea so maybe uh, an interesting point is if someone does have a different story about that please write that down in the comments and we will talk about that mm -hmm. okay um so maybe uh, a little uh, question so I, I think we haven't talked about what a, a strangler fig pattern is so we we have we've, we've talked about migration and that we use it and for those who, who weren't there in the last time or wasn't reading about that mm -hmm. the strangler fig migration pattern this is a pattern which is coined by martin fowler dennis do, do you want to explain that from your words or sh how shall we do that 
the way I can explain how I understand it and then you can do it because last time I did that on your show, maybe you do it now. So maybe I learned sure, something sure. from that as well. Cool. <laughs> so the way I understand it is that it's the metaphor being used is the strangler fig from, I don't know where it's from Australia, where it's a tree that grows around another tree. I think it's a parasite <laughs> and it suffocates the tree and replaces it. So it kills the tree and absorbs its nutrients. And it surrounds it completely, right? So it, it's this skeleton that is that is growing organically around an old system, and then it replaces it when it is overgrown, right? So from a strategic perspective, what we're doing with the strangler fig on an end-to-end -end basis is that you're supposed to say, "I'm not going to touch this." You, you you pick a part of the system. Often it's the entire system, maybe a big monolith, um, and you isolated you say i'm not going to touch this anymore right, so i'm going to treat this code base as hot fixes only or read only and then any new system i add i have to say okay where do i put this now because the stack might be old mm -hmm. it might not be task covered it might be very risky to change where do i want to put this and then you have very different various different strategies you might say okay i'm gonna just for the billing service I'm going to create up a, I create a new billing service and then gradually migrate it over, which means that every call on the billing service will now pass through the new subsystem. Maybe you'll have an anti-corruption layer there. Maybe you just have a proxy to the old system to defer unmigrated functionality. And then you're gradually replace new functionality and amend what's happening there. Now you might be doing CDC or you might not even be touching it, but you're just listening to events from the database. So you might actually mm -hmm. let the old behavior pass through and then correct it. This is the sort of more event sourcing way of actually treating your code base also as incremental. So you're not going back and fixing all the bugs. You let them be and you fix them by, by creating corrections for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's not common, at least not, not from what I observe. What's more common is to say, we're going to pick a subdomain or a suffix or one route, one family of routes, and we'll pass that to the strangler fig and then gradually absorb the old functionalities, rewrite it or just copy over or proxy over and then add functionality on top of it. And then we'll be doing that for a lot of critical subsystems. And at some point you may migrate so many things into the new system that you then modernize, maybe you test cover where you previously you couldn't, but you're no longer coupled to all the things that the old system is coupled to. So you have a more coupling freedom. You have a, you have more degrees of freedom. You might be mm -hmm. coupled to timing, but you might not be coupled to the subsystem anymore. You might be coupled to the information, but not to that specific database anymore. So you can yeah. experiment, experiment with these systems. And then gradually your facade surrounding the app will, regardless of what you're calling, always go through the new application. And then you can just suffocate the old application out and say, okay, whatever this thing is now, this is now modernized because every endpoint, every entry point touches the new system. So to an outside observer, this has been modernized and everything that we could move out had we moved out. Everything that we couldn't is now up to us to like gradually either mm -hmm. deprecate it, diminish it, or to actually just finish the absorption into the new system. If this takes a very long time, it's possible you'll also create a new layer on top of this where you strangled a monolith and you created another monolith. So you might do it again. So if you want to create a system where you don't end up in this state, you might actually strangle a monolith by extracting, strangling out subsystems. Mm -hmm. And then you make those subsystems individual as well. So you create this distributed monolith microservice mesh on top of the 
monolith. So to the outside world, they look like separate services. And then when you actually finish the strangling fig, suddenly when the old, when the core stops existing, you actually get a microservice mesh. And then it's very easy to add new things without having to strangle mm -hmm. microservices because it's usually one large thing that is immovable that you're strangling. This uh, is the goal, yeah. yeah. The goal, yeah. So if you want to avoid this continuous strangling pattern, uh, it might be helpful to strangle into a microservice mesh. But if you've never done that before, I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend that you strangle a monolith and you just try to modernize it and, you know, cut your losses and focus on what you can actually achieve. Um, and this is an interesting point because uh, yesterday we had a, I, I just opened it, uh, a uh, poll running and mm -hmm. uh, there were 22 people uh, replying and uh, and I asked um, when faced with a problematic legacy application what approach would you consider and the first one was replacement so a greenfield project yeah. then an incremental migration what is the purely definition of um, the strangler pattern yeah. and then the incremental modernization which is actually meant to be modernized within the application but okay, we could that could be argued if this isn't a migration as well uh, on some point but it, it is about the target so do you stay within your old system or will it become something new and what was interesting i already told that to dennis in chat that i was wondering that so many people say modernization instead of migration i would have expected yeah. that people would like to migrate away yeah. but it isn't like that so maybe if there are some people in, in the audience now having uh, some some ideas about that Mm -hmm. Please tell us what your ideas there actually are. So in my opinion, so maybe I give now my example in, in a very short version to give in a, a, um, a um, let's say, contrasted version of that. Mm -hmm. And this is, we had this, this big ball of mud. I already talked about that. Yeah. And we said, okay, we have this monolithic type of IIS web service, Apache web service, all this kind of stuff. And we just took a slice out of that. It was, you could say it's a context, for example, and then create that onto another place, which was in our case, a cloud native cloud platform, a pass platform. Mm -hmm. And we created a microservice there, which was basically operating all still connected to the old system, but it was operating there. We federated it. We can talk about this a little bit later in the second segment, what a federator is exact. And um, then basically with a, with a first step we've made to Put it away uh, we basically did that step by step so slice by slice and then on some point the old application disappeared and this is how we approached it um, and this is what i understand in a migration but in the same moment of course there is a modernization as well it's not like the application will be more modern than it was mm -hmm. beforehand so this is uh, probably my guessing why so many people said modernization because it's the Let's say it's actually the more positive word, but it is actually not what you do in the beginning. So the first approach yeah. would be to migrate it because we couldn't modernize our replication in the old system, which was the reason why we needed to migrate it yeah. in order to modernize it. So just to maybe bridge the gap here a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you say? I like that distinction because migration implies that there's something moving, but we're actually keeping it in place. We're actually freezing it. We're not... We're not migrating data like you would in a database context. Mm -hmm. We're actually freezing it there and we are moving around it, right? So we are the things, we, the new thing is moving, is adapting and creating an anti-corruption layer, extracting the old system. We're not actually moving anything. 
I think that's an important property. It is actually, yeah, it is. So this was a good learning yesterday evening where I haven't expected so many comments I needed to uh, answer in the (laughs) evening before sleeping, but actually it was great. So happy to do that. Actually, I really like that to engage with you guys. So we haven't any questions so far. So we have, but my chat is bugging out. Um, Yes, my usual usual streaming problems. So I'm just going to refresh. I'm going to refresh. I'll take that up, but I have one question in general. Okay. So when you are thinking of like changing legacy software, how do you define when do you need a migration and when do you need modernization? What are the cues that you see in a, in a legacy software that makes you say, okay, this is the pattern that we need to follow to actually go through a migration, or this is better the way of we use modernization? Mm-hmm. So from the perspective, Adrian, do you want to take it? Actually, I leave it to you. So I would have an answer there. So because okay. we've discussed that uh, on Perfect. LinkedIn, but do you want to or shall I, shall I? No, I'll give it a go. How do you know that you have a legacy system? I can give you a very concrete example. Imagine you have it's yelling at you. <laughs> imagine, imagine you have a system where you started off and you created a system that has integration with Stripe or with Facebook or with Shopify or any kind of very well-known, modern and very much outpacing you. That's important. They are so such a big company, probably having a monopolistic position on something like YouTube, Stripe, Facebook, etc., that they outpace you technically. So you, when you integrate with them, you conform to them. They say, we're changing our API, you have six months. And if you don't do that, we will cut you off six months later. Mm-hmm. It's possible that in order for them to allow you to keep up with pace, they give you SDKs. Mm-hmm. Now it's possible that you neglected modernizing your system to the degree that you can no longer install the SDK mm-hmm. because you're right. using a too old version of Node.js, JavaScript, maybe web, maybe your version of uh, Vite or Webpack is too old. You could install it, but you might have other dependencies that conflict with the newer version of this thing. Maybe the SDK only works on PHP 8.3, the new one that's coming out, and you're on 8.0 or 7.4, which are both end of life very soon. Right. So it's this it is constant idea of the big companies will move faster and faster, and they will give us SDKs to keep up with them. But it's possible that even our infrastructure can't keep up with them to even just install what they are giving us. Shopify does this thing now. They have almost backward incompatible changes on their APIs, on their, especially on the GraphQL side, mm-hmm. because they say, we just version them. And then we'll have eight versions live. And then we just keep deprecating the last three. And then we cut them off two years later or one year later. But you need to keep up with it. If you say, oh, we don't need to keep up because we have two years. After two years roll by without you modernizing, now you're in a constant hurry to just keep up without losing access to whatever that last version of the API now takes away from you and you have to modernize something. And mm-hmm. it's possible that if you're not modernizing your own system, you can't use their SDKs. So you constantly have to create new effort essentially invest your own money into recreating the SDKs that they've created. And you can't do that if you don't know what they do, which means that you're constantly forced to stop focusing on your roadmap 
and instead of your roadmap do maintenance or keeping the lights on activities so mm -hmm. the point of the this modernization is that we are shifting unplanned maintenance into planned maintenance and hopefully the planned maintenance is less than if we had kept it unplanned mm -hmm. that's the idea with modernization you know but but that is infrastructural reasons why technical yeah. reasons actually technical and operational reasons yes that's tactical infrastructural operational reasons now there might be strategic reasons mm -hmm. a strategic reason might be we have a technology here it was built in react four years ago now we can't hire react developers anymore now we can't leverage our technology we want to be acquired by another company they are on next.js and they are staying on next.js so they are acquiring us and want to integrate us but now we need to move the critical mainline of our operations from react to next.js or at least make them cooperate to some degree overlapping and then gradually migrating up that might be a strategic reason and that you can't find manpower right. or that the the talent that you do have is specifically focused on just one niche framework and now you have to expand your horizon and make whatever is built available to both systems or be able to be replaced or superseded with some system now there are many strategies here that you can do either micro front ends or have two versions of the app but usually what happens is that whatever the mvp was that was acquired that legacy system is old hard to change hard to understand and extremely valuable that last one, you know, legacy yeah. are always valuable. So mistakenly, product owners or non-technical founders will say, well, nobody wants to work on it, but it works. So let's just throw let's just throw it away and rewrite it. That's the worst thing because at least by keeping it that it's valuable. If you rewrite it, you might accidentally change some key characteristics of the system. The and, spirit. And the spirit, and it might actually become less valuable because you go from one thing to another you keep the design the same but it doesn't feel the same maybe the, the smoothness of it changes maybe the urls change maybe something very yeah. critical that you didn't know was important changed and then you just break the system and now you now you've added the risk of making something that is valuable but it's legacy it's hard to change now it's easy to change but it's less valuable mm -hmm. now that for a business that's always a loss so that is what we want to avoid by modernizing it gradually so that we don't have to throw away the thing that's valuable yeah. So what I can add to that is what business people say. So I'm doing a lot with business people and need to negotiate with them and translate that into tech and vice versa. And the point is always that the business people, stakeholders, they love their system. So they love the spirit. They really like this. They grew up with that. They provide a lot of value. All the salaries are paid because of the system, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, so people really love it. But what they don't like, and this is what happens in the last years, is the stagnation. So there are no new features coming. It's take ages. There are security issues, right? You might have problems with some suppliers saying you need to have some sort of certification yeah. or you yeah. need to pass tests from white hacking companies or something yeah. like that. And um, you can't really react to that. Um, so there are so many qualities not let's say not hit anymore. So you don't meet them anymore. And this is the point when, when you define requirements and qualities or so non-functional requirements in the beginning, they are all fine, but this is the point over time. You need to still keep them. And when you can't maintain your company, your, your legacy, your, your, let's say legacy system anymore. Yeah. Yep. Then you won't be able to create new features, new value. And this is what starts to frustrate the people. They love the product, but they are frustrated by the, of the process. And this is definitely a point for me which first of all causes nightmares. And the second thing, it's a clear sign that you definitely need to go on the journey 
of a migration. Yeah. You need to get into progress again. And we have that actually uh, in comments as well, discussed where people really said, it's not about saying that the legacy system is a bad system. We need to ditch it. This is just what you said. It's about how we can make this system cool again. Nobody wants to work on it because it might be too yeah. old or too, too stressful to work on. So there is risk yeah. involved with just the engineers are so annoyed by working on that system that they might, yeah. out of annoyance, neglect certain quality steps because it's so hard to maintain them. Exactly. Now you might say it needs to be test covered. It needs to be this, it needs to be reviewed. It needs to be trunk based. And then when I touch that system, I can't follow the rules there. It's a downward spiral. It will become and worse, spiral, worse and yeah. worse. And so, yeah, this is uh, just for your question, Camilla. I think it answered it very well, except we think that, I think. Okay, so and, and we, we have some have questions. A, yeah, yeah, we do have some questions. Camilla, I want you to take a look so at the questions. First, yes. can, you, uh, can you display the first one? Uh, just, just a tip for everyone who's in the audience uh, and wants to be shown uh, once in a while for the comments, you need to go into your public settings or pub yeah, privacy settings, <laughs> exactly, and set that it's okay to be displayed or somehow. I don't yes, know exactly. For your name and profile picture to be shared on your public profile. Because we see that on LinkedIn, but we don't see it here in the streaming yeah. software, just for you to know. Exactly. Okay. So it's we have two guests called Dennis and Thomas. We're also regulars on our other streams. So hello, Thomas. Hello, Dennis. <laughs> and Francisco and Seb Sebastian and Cornell. Yes. And Balaj is here. So Balaj is, Balaj is always there. Balaj, Balaj is, is always, always there. there. <laughs> he needs to be on the show one time. Yeah, we should, we should invite guests. We should invite our regulars and to sort of ask questions. But maybe with an audio event. We'll see. Questions on the screen. So the first one was about examples. What about, for example, starting point is like multiple. Is it variable with legacy software and not legacy mm -hmm. software? And this is your starting point. I think the legacy itself, the, the, if we're doing, I, I, I do a lot of code-based forensics. So I, I look mm -hmm. at the history of a GitHub repo and I and I look at how it evolved. Especially I want to spot patterns. Oh, you've done this three years ago and now you're doing it again. Right. So this is a soft problem, but for some reason you have to reinvest into it. Wouldn't it be better if we could avoid having to do this in the first place? Right. So we, we're already doing fixing. What does prevention look like? Right. So again, this idea of planned versus unplanned maintenance. So I do a lot of that. And what I notice is that it usually doesn't matter how a system came, comes to be. What matters the most on prioritization is change is frequency of change. So usually a code base will have hotspots, which are hot, which are the most valuable subsystems are either extremely old and never touched, which makes them a prime candidate for modernization, or they are touched so often that they are a complete mess. Right. So right. it is this, it is either a black spot where it has been abandoned and the original author is no longer with the company and they say, don't touch this. And it's running on some 10 year old PHP version or 10 year old version of C sharp, or it's being changed so often that it's now a complete mess, hard to understand. And probably the more features it gains, the following a power law curve, the amount of test coverage is either very low or just completely absent. Mm -hmm. So that, that is what I would say. The starting point is. I want the business 
wants to add a new feature, a significant effort of adding a new feature into one of these hotspots. So now the risk is if you don't modernize these hotspots, we make the problem exponentially worse because either we lacked knowledge and now we will risk putting a lot of new things into something we don't understand, or the thing is changing more often that now this thing that keeps changing and keeps getting touched, we will now make bigger and more complex. So that is always like a, a ticking time bomb where you can just say, okay, we will try to do that, but it might be a week or it might be a year. It's hard to say because it's one of those areas of the code base. And that's what you want to de-risk. You want to de-risk this idea of is how accurate is my planning capacity? You know, what, what am I planning? Capacity, risk, learning, knowledge transfer, like modernization. Are we using end of life systems, end of life libraries, end of life infrastructure. And sometimes it's just a mechanical problem. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's so much traffic going on into a system, especially with old Node.js, old PHP, old C Sharp, old Ruby, old Python, uh, Django applications, that it is a web server that is standalone, but stateful. So it is using the local hard drive of the instance it's running on, or it's using something that has locality, like a co-located co in-memory storage or co-located database or co-located message queue. So it cannot be split into two things. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there's just this mechanical problem of if we add this feature and we're successful, traffic will double and we will kill everything. And we can't split it apart. So that's the risk you're managing. Usually it's usually it's that simple. It's just mechanical. And then you just strangler strangler figuring the thing that causes the most traffic into the yeah. system. And then you make and then you create uh you mentioned this a lot. You create some something that can federate communication and maybe temporally decoupling, which is my topic for tomorrow's stream and hopefully the article if I manage to write it after this, where you wanna <laughs> decouple this idea that when a request comes in. It has to hit the backend immediately. If you don't send a response out, maybe it can be federated to be either put into a queue, a dead letter queue, if there's an error. Maybe sometimes that in itself is enough. Or if you're modernizing the strangler fig, what's possible is you can just send a request and have a copy of it passed into a message queue so that at least the legacy system for mm -hmm. the old clients, for the old customers, for the old tenants works this way. But all the new clients, we are also passing to this new system and we prefer giving them access to this one. The old clients know this one and they will continue using it. But the new clients should start as a starting point on this new system so that we don't even have to migrate people's settings and bookmarks and or make them backward compatible. And we'll just have two versions running side by side and we just gradually do micro front end magic. I'm playing around with the buttons, but uh, two points. <laughs> Two points. Actually, I don't like that view. So I switched back and then we... <laughs> so you had a very good point with what you just explained, especially with uh, the message queuing part that you, during the migration, you start to decouple. And this is what I really like in this case, because you just showed that you have, you have this, let's say this, this five years beforehand where you slowly get into this stagnation and mm -hmm. suddenly you are in progress again with that specific part. So you can yeah. play around in a service and like an AB test or a canary version of that you all, you know, maybe you all, you only show that to 5% or a special group 
of trusted people, you know. That's, you think, that's already very advanced. Yeah, but, but this is possible. And this is a <laughs> yeah, great advantage yeah. to get everyone, especially the stakeholders. They will see, oh, there is something we can now work on again. Look, I, it doesn't even have to be this complicated, especially to our viewers. I think our viewers will be doing Strangman Fake for the first time, or they might have been doing it a lot of time and not having, not knowing what it's called. The simplest example that I can tell you is install, you have a container and it has PHP installed. If you don't want to go the microservice route, install a second version of PHP into this container mm -hmm. and have two versions running in the same container. PHP is one of the rare instances where that is possible. But even with NVM, you can do that with a Node.js setup, with RVM, PM2. you can do it with a Ruby, PM2, etc. Right? So you have a process manager and NVM managing the version of the Node process. So you can do them side by side. And then if you're whatever you have in front of it, Nginx, Hotproxy, Caddy is also becoming very popular. Or if you're in the C-sharp ecosystem, if you're just Use, if you're already cloud native, then it's also already a huge benefit because you have request federators, load balancers. Maybe you have network level load balancing or just service level load balancing. So you can already say, hey, this part of the traffic, so calls to the billing service should go here to the new project first. It, sh it should go there first. And then maybe that part, then proxying it over. If, it's, if there's some use case that we're not migrating, if that only stays in the old server, Maybe you version them, the unversioned version goes there, the new version goes there. Or you or you create three versions, which is what I do generally. If if you have because a lot of teams just start off with a project that's called API. And every team that I coach, they will inevitably have a service that just called API. This is our API. <laughs> and then I, I tell them when you strangle fig the API, don't call it API version two, <laughs> but say this is now billing, right? And then I always say create three endpoints, create the old, maintain the old endpoint, but don't route it to the old service. Call the old service API version one or API legacy. The new URL, even if it's called API, that you route to the new server. And then you also have a separate route calling the new server API v2 or billing v2 or just billing or billing v1 regardless of now how you're if you're semantically versioning or not if you're doing it adjacent because then if you're doing it that way the old calls can be backward compatible but you now have a switch let's say on nginx or on hot proxy or on your load balancer that says okay by default where should it go I can address legacy directly. I can address the new one directly. So I can always manually say which one I want, mm -hmm. but the backward compatible URL, I want to control whether it shows by default the newest one or the latest one. So I can have a feature toggle while I'm learning how to strangle this. And I can even say on this subsection of the URLs, it is turned on by default. And on this subsection of the URLs, it is turned off by default. So then I actually controlling on the Nginx le level or just a load balancing level, a router level, I'm controlling which part of the mesh is exposed right now and how is it put together. Because it's possible that you're just migrating a large system where the boundaries of the services are not very well expressed and they are not versioned. So you will create a mess. So you have to suspend your sort of willingness to be in an unclean state or sort of a little bit of a messy state 
temporarily to suspend this idea that, okay, I will now create a mess to figure out what the best strategy moving forward is. But I can't do that fully back on compatible. So you want to break something as early as possible and then migrate to that. And then, okay, now we're version. We had to break something, but at least now we're version. So then you move forward from there. So that was a good um, explanation. There's actually a nice comment about this. I don't know if I can show everything because it's very long. Oh yeah, perfect. Okay, and, and my um, forehead. Yeah, we just read it out and then. <laughs> just, just, just push up your chair a little bit or stand up yeah. or something. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah. Just mitigate the problem. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I will make a clip out of that. <laughs> Reading this comment. Yeah, so basically a challenge has been encountered is where there are multiple alt systems with overlapping functionality, such mm -hmm. as applications brought into your company through acquisitions and you're trying to modernize or migrate several of them at the same time. You want to end you want to end up with the best of the best, taking mm -hmm. the best parts of each application and rewriting where there isn't a best in any of the applications. And you really don't want to end up with Frankenstein monster. How do you draw the line? Like, how do you actually make this as flawless as possible? For example, everything that you are explaining before, okay, mm -hmm. you can start with several parts. How do you avoid ending up with this Frankenstein monster? Specifically, let's say through acquisitions, there's usually one problem that supersedes all of our possible solutions, which is okay. if we were acquired or if we merged, whatever, there were usually two teams. Is one of the teams getting fired? Is, is Are the original authors staying on both sides of this discussion? That That's really important because mm -hmm. what we want to maintain is if we are migrating together now to me meshing together two systems and usually when you merge two companies together both of them will have copies of accounting user management login right. security they will have federators they will have caches and they will have it on different services different versions of the same services or one will use clickhouse and kafka the other one will use mysql and mongo and they might overlap in ways that are not naturally compatible so the real question is are both, let's say, long-term maintainers, the team, the, the people who have the knowledge, the product understanding and the engineering skill, is everybody still present? Because if yes, then you can just keep the system. If not, then you need to ask yourself, does the team who stayed understand that other system that they are now maintaining? Because it's very likely that they will create a, a, a biased perception where they will want to migrate things from there to here if it's valuable. But it's it's very unlikely that they would do it the other way around when an acquisition right. of that manner happens. Right? So you'd, you'd very rarely say, oh, I will delete this thing. We acquire a company, so I will delete something from our core because they have it implemented much better. That's usually, I like that's, that, it's very contextual, of course. I'm generalizing. But I, I've never seen that happen. I've never really seen anybody jump to that conclusion at first and what i generally see happening in these kind of cases or if it's just two two engineering departments who are adjacent on two separate products that the products merge or they become adjacent or they become product ladders of the same sort of offering for the same kind of ideal customer profile 
these types of engineering teams then clash because they have the services named the same way, but they have different ubiquitous meanings. They have different languages, different boundaries. They overlap with different subsystems and they were, they are specialized in implementation and possibly have some performance benefit of, for overlapping with a subsystem in a certain way. And then the two copies of the system disagree on how large the overlap should be. So with this kind of system, the systems, the biggest problem is, are you duplicating data? So if I say, when a user registers, where should they go? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, I, and I always encourage people who are doing like this kind of acquisition is to model the flow of their data, specifically event modeling, event storming, etc. have a flow diagram. It's like, can a user use the old company's registration flow and company B's registration flow? Are they different registration flows or do they meet somewhere? If they meet somewhere, can you register into the same subsystem, but they will have different UIs depending on where you came from, right? So we have to keep this in mind throughout sort of the, the modernization process is that it is us following the technology of what technology supports the data stream mm -hmm. that are being produced by human processes. So I, the human, can I, are there two different incompatible registration pages that end up in the same database? That's a problem. And then modernizing that backend system is not going to help you. What will help you is deciding, okay, why are they different? In what way are they different? Do, do we want to maintain the difference? If we were to make substantial changes to the registration flow, would we want to maintain the differences? Why do the differences matter? For example, I think a good example of this is Meta when they acquired um, Instagram. Your Instagram login also became your Facebook login, but right. your Facebook login didn't become your Instagram login, mm -hmm. right? So it, it didn't migrate in both directions well, and you could maintain both of them and then connect them, which a which was a once once per account, once per lifetime activity, you could connect them together. You could say, I want to merge this. This process of adding this new service or this new feature of merging accounts, this was something that was added by, I'm assuming the meta team to alleviate collaboration with the old team that stayed. Mm -hmm. Because then they could say, if, I if we just maintain both systems and allow everybody to merge and then new accounts, we merge automatically. Now that is a very good modernized approach where we can keep the best of both worlds. Right, so I, I would like to some, add something very important here to understand yeah. on a higher level is that mm -hmm. um, especially the term Frankenstein's monster, you will definitely get to a Frankenstein's monster when you create a new one application out of several applications. Yes. One of the reasons why microservices were invented was to prevent those dynamics from happening. So you yes. have bad systems exactly yeah. and you start to make clear boundaries of things and when plan before you make this and have a clear plan of your boundaries and then you can just start to create those entities content or what, however you want to call them create microservices for them and then you basically have them in the end so Mm -hmm. Every migration or modernization, let's stick with migration today, should end in a system which is pretty well defined and all the governance between the services must be defined as well. And then mm -hmm. you will not end up in Frankenstein's monster because you understood what you want to have before you actually have started to do that. Mm 
-hmm. So this is very important. You need to implement governance in that case. So someone needs to have the overview and the last say in terms of boundaries so mm -hmm. that you have basically have a contract in between the services and the teams working on that. So this is from the high level perspective, from the organizational standpoint, a very important thing I want to provide you. Yeah. I think what's worth mentioning from this, this is a broad topic. I don't want to generalize too much, but to stay with this person's comment, this is Dennis. Dennis, to stay with your comment is that companies, when they merge, especially when they migrate, yeah, th this comment companies, when they migrate, they will often, they will often want to centralize the thing that is most primary to their service offering. No, that's <laughs> now you remove them. <laughs> it doesn't help. Uh, right. So for example, if I say MasterCard is a very good example, you don't know you have a MasterCard account because you were never asked to have a master mastercard.com account. You have many accounts on every single bank that integrates with MasterCard where you have an account. Now that also creates a MasterCard Master MasterCard account for you, but you're not aware of it because they are a platform. They are a network. They don't really talk directly to customers. They are B2B. And it's, for example, something similar happens when you have Google, let's say, or Microsoft as a open ID provider, and then two companies merge and their respective accounts can be registered using Google accounts. Now, when you merge those two databases together, they will have two different connection points and two different types of users, but at least you can identify the uniqueness of a user by their external reference, which remains the same, but now they will have access to two accounts and then they can decide how to, how to organize that. But there is this urge that whatever the main component is, for example, Meta is a social network. From my perspective, when I see this happen with companies, what they will do is either they will acquire a really micro competitor or they will hire somebody like aggressively acquire the engineers from another engineering team and they will then quickly rebuild some part of the system that they're touching frequently according to their own style according to their own desired level of quality or just design or domain understanding because maybe they have a much better domain understanding that's why they were acquired mm -hmm. which then runs the risk of what do you want to centralize is the centralization point the ui so does the ui now need to know how to work with two different apis where do those apis overlap is that op or overlap desired in the long term or are you going to strangle fig one of them and absorb them slowly into the other one but that's also possible but that's a much more complex use case you might not actually be happy with either one of them and you might actually modernize both of them strangling them into the same system and then the new system is actually deciding okay if it's this kind of user then it goes that way or this way and from this point onward and on this version of new api it doesn't matter anymore they're part of now this modernization migration process. So from the perspective of just us having governance and oversight, it's really important to understand what is really important to the business. Right? So we as engineers need to understand our tactics need to match strategy, do they? How would we know that we're off? So if we acquire something and all the engineering says, oh, this is black, we want to rewrite everything. Okay. 
That's a tactic. Does that match where our uh, that does that match our business strategy, or did we acquire them for a purpose? Because sometimes companies get acquired so that you kill a competitor. Sometimes companies get acquired so that you get their manpower, you get the knowledge, or you. Sometimes companies get acquired just to get their ownership of their intellectual property, of patents, of algorithms, of data access, of some exclusive contracts with some integrator. So there are many different reasons for acquisition. Sometimes a company gets acquired just for political purpose and the, and the underlying infrastructure will either be maintained by somebody else or killed or just abandoned. So I, I wouldn't say that from the context of a strangling click that this is modernization. This is just business strategy. Modernization is when the team decides enough is enough. We have started self-censoring to such a degree that business wants to implement features to a higher level because we're getting more and more successful and we're scaling more. And we are feeling the pain of with every passing month, we are more and more afraid of touching some part of the subsystem. Mm -hmm. And we're not tackling, we're not hitting the system where it hurts the most. That's when modernization comes in, right? So I just want to separate out this very high level political play on this business strategy because they might create a mess. No problem. It's very easy to create a mess in, in, in software architecture and data governance and privacy. No, don't get me started. We need to continue with the next topic already. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Let's go. Okay, so we have one more comment and then we go to the actually to the agenda to finish the first yes. segment, which is the mm -hmm. theoretical segment. And we have, I just switched to the other design so we see still Dennis. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so, how many requirements are based on legacy code convert, but when you use JavaScript with Babel, mm -hmm. actually, Babel convert modern code to legacy code. So, easily supported browser version. So, could you explain it? I would like to start. So, I don't think. Babel converts to legacy code. It can shim, yes, but it's right? it's actually not legacy in 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 that term because not in this definition. Yeah, what you actually do is you convert it to to some specific version for some specific things, yeah. and then later on the system will be able to execute it. So I understand this, but this is more a compatible thing than a legacy thing. So I wouldn't call it legacy because the real definition of legacy is that it's still in use and that doesn't fit to the idea of old stuff yeah. in that case. So maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I, I would start. There um, are use cases for this. I used to start off my career in an agency where, mm -hmm. you know, the constant battle was, will we support Internet Explorer or not? And what version? And it was in the contract, right? The contract said we need to support I, the, the website needs to not fall apart in IE6. I remember those times, but that's passe, right? Nowadays, that would, nowadays that would mean, does it work on a Samsung phone? Does it work on an iPhone? Does it work on a tablet? Does it work on some random phone you get in India? Does it work on a random phone that somebody's building a prototype it's for? Compatibility. And, yeah. and it's yeah. compatibility, but not to the sense that it is functional compatibility. But, but just somebody has a very high, somebody has a very high, let's say, desire for pixel perfect design or UX look and feel animation speed. And they just want to have, a, 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 mm. let's say a uniform level of experience across a wide variety of devices. 
where you don't where you don't control the target market of the devices. Mm-hmm. Right? So iPhone, for example, doesn't have this problem because they fully control the target market of the devices. But you might have a a fintech app for which for whatever reason needs to be accessible and blind blind people have to be able to use it and you have to be able to use it with a old smartphone with a new smartphone with some legacy requirements so you will have to cross compile your modern nextjs view like a t3 stack hybrid into es6 or even es5 jobs yeah but this becomes more and more or less dominant with let's say with modules this kind of stuff bubble mm-hmm. is actually not a big thing or it is still but it won't be in the future so i wouldn't go too deep into the yeah. idea of bubble but but the this wasn't actually the question was a different one as far as i understand mm-hmm. it so how does in a legacy migration bubble plays a role so this is how i understand the question yeah. um i would say that actually none because you don't in in an ideal world you don't touch the legacy code so yeah. you can modernize it uh, in between to have like some kind of security updates of course but yeah. in, in many cases you can't update the legacy system anymore this is so actually you don't say okay i need to transfer you don't copy the code and let it run somewhere else you migrate it by in small parts and mm-hmm. you write it anew so this part in new but it's not like you have just a specification you take a look at the old part and then you build a new part but this for example it could be that you already write it with es modules and you don't compile or transpile anything anymore that's mm-hmm. possible in theory so I, mean, um, i don't think babel plays a role in legacy babel might be an infrastructure concern but babel might touch on a more upstream problem an upstream problem would be we're using angular right now we want to go to vercel Right, so you have this problem of, but mm-hmm. our application is a very large Angular application. Are we going to rewrite everything in Vercel? And the obvious answer is, if it's valuable, then no. Because if it's valuable, then it took us a long time to get here. And if you don't fully understand it, then we might not want to break it. If you don't want to break it, then we might not want to reinvest just to get the same thing. That's silly. So the question you might ask is, okay, how can I make this decision of using Vercel for new things without it being disruptive to the user experience. And now Babel might come in and say, okay, in order for these two words to play, I need some module interoperability in the way that how do I compile these two packages together? Mm -hmm. Are they aware of each other? Does one supersede the other? Can I install both of them in the same browser session on the same page and have essentially two single page applications fighting for control over routing and history and such and the event management is that possible or will one of the is one of the applications going to have to give way uh, to which one has the more dominant position in the browsers mm-hmm. in the browser's ecosystem because usually one of them dominates this also happens in in for example in integration points where you might have pixels or analytics code or some kind of conversion tracking on your website it needs to be done in such a way that it is not the dominant ecosystem in the for example when jquery was still a thing and it still is but jquery was dominant and then if you created a plugin that required a specific version of jquery it's possible mm-hmm. you weren't popular because they were already using it but they were using a different version so now they couldn't install yours because your version required them to upgrade jquery so this becomes a problem of 
if I have a dollar sign for old jQuery and a dollar sign for new jQuery, what does interoperability look like? Can I isolate that on a modular level, on a tactical level? Do I need to isolate that on a strategic level? Does the new system have to be on a different subdomain than the old system? You know, for a good example for this would be the Amazon catalog versus the checkout process. If you've noticed, when you go to the checkout, you're on a different subdomain. So this is a different microservice fronted by a different micro frontend. So the navigation's gone, the footer's gone, the menu's gone, and you're essentially on a different application that follows the same design rules. So it's seamless. But one team can, in, the, the catalog team can independently of everybody else make mm -hmm. aggressive changes to how the catalog works and how session management works in the catalog. And then the checkout team can independently build their checkout, possibly on newer levels of newer versions of technology, more modern technology, different kinds of technology, different frameworks, as long as it looks the same and follows the same design rules. So that would be, let's say, my advice for a front, more front-end focused for this question. <clears throat> Usually it's the strategic approach is much more sane. And it's much easier to flesh out the, the problem of can I hide the menu versus can we go away for eight months and rewrite everything in Vercel? Vercel. Okay, let's. So there was the Vercel conf, right? The next conf were last week. I was last week. I think after your stream, it was straight. I wasn't attending there, but uh, yeah, you just mentioned that maybe if someone is interested, it was last mm -hmm. week. So maybe you can take a look at that. Camilla, do we have any more questions in the chat or do you have any questions? So far? Uh, no, I think so far that's all we have. Good. I would say we go to the second segment then, which is the deep dive into the migration implementation. So this is the how, and we were in the why with some touches into the how, but now let's talk about the why. So we go through some things like the critical path now, the the, the role of continuous delivery. And maybe the, the idea what, what um, for example, a destination for your new application could be. So we had mm -hmm. in the last episode Cloud Native, for example. So what is Cloud Native in a nutshell and why it's a good target for a, a let's say, a migration when you're only in a data center, for example. And uh, then we're going for a little bit of open forum stuff so you can get back into the question mode. So I would quickly start so with, the, with the, the critical path of a migration. So we've talked about many things now, but what is actually, what are the steps now? So when we think of migration, I would quickly start and then pass it to you, Dennis, so you could maybe add something or correct me. It's just what I'm thinking now. When we think of a migration, you start with a point where you detect, I have a legacy system. So I have a burden there. And I wa don't want to have my application, which, which does have a lot of spirit. I don't want it to be a burden anymore. I want yeah. to get into progress again by keeping the spirit. So I want to do a migration. I want to go on this journey. <clears throat> so this is the first step you need to be aware of. You need to admit that you have a problem and then you need to yeah. go on the journey to fix it. The next step is when we stay on the hands-on part now, so not on the theoretical stuff so you need to do something you need to define a target a migration means you go out of your current system so let's take let's assume you have a data center several servers running there and they are the old application then you can for example this is what i mentioned with cloud native then you can pick a cloud target 
which is then the target for the new, let's take microservices as an example. You put your microservices in there, you mm -hmm. set up a new database, a Redis server or message queuing, yeah. you set it up in the cloud and you have your data center next to each other. You two things, mm -hmm. this is the next step. And then you need to have something above that, which is then the actual new application. So you, have a, you will have a new application. This is the federator. For us, it was always uh, some form of Nginx, which federated the old and the new system to one new virtual instance. And this virtual instance exists as long as you will do the migration, as long as you are on this journey. And when you are, when you're done, when the last bit of the migration is done, you actually don't need this uh, federator anymore because this federator is then the API gateway of your cloud native application, which can be an Nginx as well, or whatever you, you want to have that. So those are the critical paths in a nutshell, very simplified, of course, but they are. So there are something like message queuing stuff. So to optimize it, maybe you, can you take from there what you can do to- I, I actually have a cloud specific example of this mm -hmm. where this was back in first blood in 2000, um, where we had this situation where we just grew. So became popular. We, we got a feature that had good product market fit and then it just ballooned. And we went from a few servers to 80 microservices and then a large AWS multi VPC setup. And I remember hiring our first sort of sysadmin slash DevOps person. The title wasn't still, wasn't as regimented back then as it is now. And I remember we had this problem. We were strangling out a so we had self-managed Docker Swarm clusters on mm -hmm. EC2, which meant that our deployment target handled all services internally, except the database was managed on AWS. So it was on RDS and we had everything we needed locally inside the Docker Swarm definition. So Redis, uh, RabbitMQ, any kind of other technology that was adjacent, mm -hmm. things like traffic, things like sticky socket management, things like load balancing, hot proxy, right? So we just kept it all condensed so that we could spin it up locally outside of the AWS ecosystem. Because we knew we weren't going serverless cloud native, but we knew that we want to containerize much more eventually. Mm -hmm. And I remember we had this, you said, pick a goal. I would say make bold moves and make small moves like bold small moves what you definitely shouldn't do is do a safe and small a safe and benign large move don't do that don't do something that's a low win but it it covers an an extreme amount of horizontal sort of infrastructure for example if you have what we did we had uh, a self-managed Redis server in that Docker swarm, and we have two swarms that was now gradually growing. So the, imagine there were like 10 services in each swarm, and they both knew about the same Redis server. And the swarms knew about each other through an internal external router. So you had a different subnet for that. And externally, there were just different subdomains of the system, and they would SSL terminate outside and then communicate with each other that way. And that was clumsy because performance was really bad with the cross, cross VPC communication, cross Docker swarm communication. Mm -hmm. And sysadmin comes in 
First thing they do, okay, we're going to a auto-scale to manage the redness. What was step one? Migrate everything. And I told them, and I still recall having the conversation, I said, because they opened up a PR and it was basically a, a pull request that touched the, we had a mono repo and it touched all configs of all projects at the same time. And I told them, look, <laughs> this is great, but now I want this split up into 20 steps and I want each owner and each maintainer of the servers, of the services to be able to reject you. You have made this mandatory, which makes this risk extremely, which mm -hmm. makes this deployment extremely risky. Plus mm -hmm. two of the two of the 10 teams are in extremely tight deadlines on extremely mission critical deployments. They do not want to deal with your Redis stuff right now. Yep. So I, so we course corrected and we said, okay, rather than mandating a hard migration, do gradual modernization, strangling. Strangle the old Redis server, have it replicate into the new one, and then have the new one be available on a cluster on demand. So that if I decide to switch suddenly from one to the other, you don't notice, I don't have to notify you. And also I am making that switch when I decide to deploy without data loss. Yep. And if we can try not to force all teams to go with your deployment at the same time, not all teams have the luxury of being able to focus on this right now. What does modernization here entail? Modernization here entails that, that we are centralizing and scaling. So we're making it cheaper for each team to maintain Redis, but the migration is expensive. So we are temporarily decoupling. We've introduced a seam where they added a config that was better than being mandated and optimized for the new system. It was optimized for backward compatibility with the old system with the option of saying, hey, from now on, connect to the new one instead of the old server. But by default, it connects to the old server. And then we would keep them running side by side for a very long time and even have automated checks, checking the data, do the servers match? Is there lag? Is there any kind of data corruption? Did we lose anything? And then once that was safe, then we turned off the old Redis server. Because they thought the most important part was, oh, we're doing this to mitigate costs. So obviously I want to migrate everything in one go and then shut the old stuff down. That's unnecessary. And that was an unsound assumption because we weren't doing that to save costs on infrastructure. We are doing that to save costs on development effort because we are pushing two high priority projects out at the same time. And we didn't have time to support the infrastructure while also maintaining the deadline. It was really important to decouple this effort of, yes, maintain everything else right now to show evidence of incremental improvement towards, yes, we are capable of maintaining mm -hmm. it, no problems. And then when we know there's no problems, then the owners of those two projects, they will then decide to do it themselves. At least, but give them the platform, give them the freedom of deciding, you have now migrated everything, let them swap. Give them a deadline, give them a deprecation notice, give, give them some procedure to follow of how to safely migrate but don't let them be the, the canneries, essentially. Mm -hmm. right? If something goes wrong, their project must not be impacted. That's one of those points when we say we, we 
see the cloud native idea where we have everything services. Mm -hmm. We can, of course, do that without cloud native as well. So no, no question there. But it's important to understand it's about decoupling again. Yep. Get this big monolithic approach where everything is tightly coupled into yep. a service orientated approach where you have services, microservices, cloud services, however you want. Even cloud functions could work for that, but we need to be careful to not couple them again. But mm -hmm. um, this is very important to understand why we're actually talking today about this topic. Um, and, and this is what I said, you need to define your target, which is not only the destination, like where you put your software on, it's mm -hmm. how you put your software on, in which type, in which form, in which architecture. Yeah. And why, why, why? Yeah, like, the why, yeah. What are we saving? Are we saving stress? Are we saving money? Because sometimes, I don't know why, but a lot of engineers and especially sysadmins that I worked with, they always came from this point of, I want to set up the most efficient infrastructure that saves money for infrastructure costs. But the business sometimes says, we don't want to invest in optimizing this right now. Give me the most expensive server for the next two weekends, please. Mm -hmm. And make the problem go away. Because yeah. I'm dealing with a spike, not with volume, right? So just I just need the spike handled this weekend, please. Set up, expensive server, test run, barrage, artillery, stress test, and yeah. let the engineers focus on what's really important. I would like to ask a little question in between. You mentioned Docker Swarm clusters, so we used them in the past as well. Mm -hmm. And there was always the question, uh, shall we go for Docker Swarm for orchestration or shall we go for Kubernetes? We always stick with Docker Swarm because it was yeah. somehow better to handle. What is your opinion these days about that? So if someone would ask you about how to go with orchestration. I don't think I'm the right person here for like, I'm, I'm not super tactical on the infrastructure side of things. And I mm -hmm. never really enjoyed that part. What I really care about is the architecture aspect of if I mm -hmm. decide to do Docker Swarm instead of Kubernetes, what does that decision prevent me from doing in the future? That that's what I'm like thinking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I don't really understand. Is it going to be cheaper, harder? No, is if I'm using Helm, it, 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 am I missing out on some ready, sexy tooling for DevOps people? <laughs> who can, you know, like I, that I'm not current on, and I don't really want to interfere with that. I like teams to have autonomy on that. But mm -hmm. my real concern is if we make an architectural decision, A, does everybody need to make it? So I'm very wary, I'm very sensitive when a decision is made and it impacts everybody. Right? Like that is the worst kind of coupling. Coupling because we're coupling the teams together. We're forcing mm -hmm. the teams to communicate because of an infrastructure concern. Mm -hmm. That is always a dangerous decision. Yeah. Right. So I'm always saying this, if you're going cloud native, even if you're going multi-cloud, if you need that, and most people don't need that, then there's already this concern of if you go to a managed AWS service mm -hmm. will you be using aws exclusive features because if yes you'll be you'll probably be stuck on that and so lock in, yeah. when when vendor lock-in you might be ex using something very local or you might be for performance reasons using a bypass into you know, rds or aurora that might not be available with a self-managed mysql or percona database so or you might be doing backups differently or you might be doing it because you have 
credits right now from your seed investor and don't <laughs> run out very quickly next We're year. We're making decisions because of credits, right? <laughs> Always good. Always good, and that's and that's a very bad decision because really yeah. my 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 concern is. Okay, we're on AWS, and now that's AWS is becoming this thing where all the popular software is there. But I remember there was a time where AWS didn't have RabbitMQ. So if I wanted to use message queues on AWS, I was forced to use SQS. And I was always, mm -hmm. hmm, should I? Is that? Well, now there's multiple. You have Firefox for the lossy telemetry with low latency. You have SQS for if you, especially if you're on dead letter queue management. Now you have this sort of abstracted, you even have a managed Kafka cluster now. So you have this choice now where you didn't before, but these things are extremely expensive. Like you need to have a really good reason for, for having this because mm -hmm. they are also expensive in the terms of, do you even understand the configuration that is AWS specific on top of what you need? Because really what you want, if you're strangling thinking, if you're modernizing applications using strangling mm -hmm. I also want to think about it from a different perspective is if it turns out that this was a bad decision, how hard is that decision to undo? Yeah. Is, is, there, is, is, is the RDS database for MySQL or Postgres on AWS something I can opt to use? Or is this the only thing that passes through my fire, very strict firewall settings and I now have to use this and I can't use anything else? This is a very important topic and I want to, to just say, I've talked a lot about uh, agnosticism and all this kind of stuff. These days, you don't need to be vendor locked in anymore if you don't want to have it. So of course, serverless people are always vendor locked in. There's, there's no way around that really. But yeah. if you if you stay with the idea of, okay, I want to use cloud, I want to even be cloud native. I mm -hmm. even want to use past systems to, to lower my efforts in operations and focus on development, which is the yeah. right choice in my opinion, then you can still stay agnostic these days. For example, for a message clearing system, you can use something very simple like the newer versions of BullMQ. We use them in basically every project. Yeah. And uh, my colleague will talk on some point about that as well. He's the head of that. And, and I know uh, you're in the PHP Symfony ecosystem and the new symphonies yeah. even have a the new messenger component, which even makes the integration with them agnostic to the message queue itself. Exactly. So it's this is very important to understand is you should not uh, connect yourself in a form of tight coupling to a vendor because you have some credits or you have some people only understanding this. So this should not be your constraint in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I, the second, what I want to say about is that you should keep it as simple as possible. So why are you going to do a migration? Because yes. a greenfield project is too complicated and too dangerous to understand, to keep in mind, and maybe you change the spirit and all this kind of stuff. And a greenfield to... project has too few constraints. That's why it's yeah. dangerous. Yeah, but so you want to keep it as simple as possible um, to make a migration. Yeah. So you need to focus on the parts you want to migrate instead of getting too many more challenges onto your desk for of your teams. Your teams, for example, they were, let, let's imagine, you don't have more personnel that you have beforehand. So the personnel, who, the teams who were working on your old legacy project yeah. now needs to work in an entire entirely different thing. So I had several CTO fellowship programs with uh, companies like that, and they all struggled. So they all thought, yeah. oh, in two weeks or three weeks, we need to start the migration. No, you need right. to learn from now yeah. on 
new culture, new engineering culture, continuous delivery, how microservices or services are actually working. You need yeah. to learn what boundaries are. You don't know that you're working in modern yeah. applications and all this kind of stuff. And this is, um, so when we talk about cloud native, let's say quickly with cloud native, because one specific point, my question from beforehand, Docker Swarm versus Kubernetes. I personally won't go with Docker Swarm anymore because it's too complicated to manage. There's only one or two providers out there which yeah. provides that in a managed form and you don't have any, uh, let's say, any uh, advantages. So my, so we went with Kubernetes in the beginning mm -hmm. with AWS Kubernetes when we went cloud native and very quickly we switched from infrastructure as a service to platform as a service because yeah. We were developers, mainly developers. All of us were mainly developers. There were some had some form of infrastructure op skills, but most hadn't. So we yeah. want to, don't want to have this as a constraint or a challenge. This is basically totally worthless in this case. It doesn't provide you anything. It even caused you something. And the reason why I really love platform as a service platforms like DigitalOcean's app platform is that even our junior developers can work with with uh, basically yeah containers orchestrators they can even make changes there they can live the original idea of devops the culture from end to end the developer is responsible yeah. for the pipelining for the red green thing and that is actually deployed yeah of course you can have specialists they're setting that up for you but and this is just what i wanted to mention is that it is very important that during a legacy migration, which is very complicated to do, it is complicated thing with a lot of challenges, a lot of things you need to transfer. Try to get every challenges out of the way, which are not necessary and which don't pay anything onto this goal, into, into the value of your no, new destination. And so I would prefer to recommend every small to medium-sized company to take a look into past solutions be, before you actually plan your migration out because even if a past solution is very, let's say, limited mm -hmm. in what you need, but the limitation, and when you take a look at your requirements and your qualities, those limitations are not harming you. Your requirements, if you set them right, fit inside those limitations of a past platform. And yeah. this is the point. This is a very important point for all three layers, strategic, tactical, and operational layers. Mm -hmm. And it may be, um, Camilla, can, can you maybe, I don't know, um, you, you're working a little bit with uh, DigitalOcean App Platform when you deploy things. You actually, as a junior developer, you're already working actively with the idea of, yeah, of CICD pipelines, actually. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that, what your idea is of this perspective of a junior developer, how you have this this end-to-end -end responsibility? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The first thing I want to say, like, of course, it was very scary at the beginning because you have no idea about this. When you're a junior developer, you're like, okay, architecture, and you're very scared about these things and thinking about pipelines. But like the more you start working, you need to get into this mentality of you have to take care of the pipeline. If you push something, you have to check that it's actually deployed. Otherwise, nothing can work. If the pipeline is not working, your other colleagues can push, and then you actually can have the latest state of the software that you're building. And this is something very important. So I don't know, like for me, for example, I always check what I'm doing, I build, I push, and then I check the pipeline. Is everything okay in the pipeline? Is there any errors that I still need to check? Is there something that maybe was missing from the push before? Because sometimes 
you just push, I don't know, you're going to a meeting or something else, and then you don't realize that the pipeline is not working, or you don't realize that there are actually some errors in the console that need some checking, and they're simple errors that can just be fixed in one or two minutes. So you just go and do this. And once everything is done, then your push is done. Then you can actually say, okay, this ticket is actually done because the pipeline is working. But it's, it's switching into this mentality of the responsibility that you have about this. Mm. Yeah. And, and just to, to wrap this up, most okay. companies I worked with to help them getting into this migration pattern, most developers don't even know what a CI/CD pipeline was. Yeah. Just to say that this is not a hardcore technique anymore. This is something you yeah. should implement very early on and bring in all your developers to practice that. Yeah. Because this is a necessary change for a successful migration. So, Dennis, I've interrupted you. <clears throat> Camilla has a very good point about... I just want to highlight this idea of if you're using a Strangler fig, uh, what I find, especially if you're starting off, so from the perspective of Camilla, uh, if you're a junior developer and one of your architects or you hired somebody like me and now <laughs> the senior management asks, okay, we want to move faster forward. Okay, strangle fake this and this critical system. And then mm -hmm. somebody like Camilla is then exposed to, okay, are there three pipelines now? Like how many projects do I have to worry about right now? My, my recommendation is always on this idea of Docker Swarm versus Kubernetes. Make sure that while you're doing the strangler fig, that it is the same deployment artifact. That is extremely important. Until the strangler fig project has been finished, it has to be the same deployment artifact. Because if it isn't, if you didn't manage temporal coupling, if you didn't loosely couple the services temporally, mm -hmm. then that means that a developer who wants to add this to this new project and this to the old project, they will be encouraged to work on two separate problems, possibly even on two separate versions on two separate branches. This needs to be avoided, right? So if, especially if you have a monorepo, make sure that when you're doing the strangling fig, that it is the same deployment artifact. That it's then gradually, be, because that is the only way that you can maintain that it is backward compatible. Mm -hmm. You can break this rule if you're very advanced, and you are already on microservices. You are already cloud native. Orchestration is very natural to you. No problem. No, I have no qualms there. But it's very, it's much more likely that you wouldn't even have this kind of problem to begin with if you are very good at cloud orchestration. So my recommendation is do not introduce pipeline coupling while you're decoupling the modules. Adrian, you mentioned boundaries. My, my number two tip for doing a strangler fig project initiative well is don't take your api project and strangle it into api v2 mm -hmm. make sure that the migration is asymmetric you take something that's very big and generally named and migrate it into something small and specific so migrate something api v2 slash something migrate that to the billing microservice api v1 slash users migrate that to the account management uh, mm -hmm. service, right? So make sure that the, the migration is asymmetric because the, the asymmetry will cause you to give a more specific name to the new system, which will bound it, right? So you want to encounter this problem of, oh, I have named the two specifically. Now I need to create another one. That's the problem you want to have. If you're not having this problem, your naming is still too vague. Unless you're in a very simple domain, but then you mm -hmm. wouldn't have to be having this problem. Mm -hmm. 
the really important distinction to be made here is that you don't want to create a monolith. You want to have a facade when the federated API has 40 endpoints. The after migration, you want those 40 endpoints to still work. But under the hood, under the strangled fig, you want, instead of having a monolith, to have 40 very or 15 very distinctly named pieces. That's what you want to end up with. If you start with a large monolith and you did the strangling fig and you ended up with another monolith that behaves the same, it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, it smells like a duck, it flies like a duck, then you just recreated the original system, possibly badly, and six months from now, you will have exactly the same problem again. Yeah, right? this so, is more so like a lift and shift approach. It's a lift and shift. Yes, so it's not enough that you go from, I hate working on the system to it's okay now. You have to aim for the big win being bold move. And we have prevented something of this nature of happening in the future. Mm -hmm. So bold move and prevention both need to be there. You the need to get into the loop of continuous modernization. And then you need to get into the loop of continuous modernization because if you keep those things small, it's very likely that then one of those important frequently changing things will then again grow into a monolith. But at least at that point, the net functionality has grown in the business, but the net size of the largest piece has shrunk. Right. So as the complexity increases, you want that to be a larger and larger volume of smaller and smaller pieces. You don't want to be, and it's okay to start off with one large chunk of something. You just want to make sure that when you create two, mm -hmm. both these two pieces are smaller than that, what you started off with. Because the worst case scenario is I have a monolith and I am now creating this small microservice. And because of this small microservice, the monolith now has all these extra responsibilities to defer some functionality there. That is the worst case. That, that is not strangling fig. That is just somebody having a field day on a greenfield project playing around with some new shiny tool. That's what you definitely don't want because the, the, the strangling fake done well is extremely difficult on the naming part. It's really hard to say, I will only do the subscription part of billing. I'm not even doing that UI thing of doing the front end where I, somebody has a customer support issue with one of the orders. No, I'm only doing the monetary exchange for recurring payments, mm -hmm. right? Because it's possible that is not properly named in the system right now. So somebody will need to find all of those badly named pieces of the monolith of the big ball of mud, as Adrian likes to keep mentioning it. It's pick those, get all the names down on paper and then draw a circle and say, we are modernizing this and nothing more. And then when somebody else starts modernizing something else, make sure they can't touch your stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, the payments thing is modern. Let's add. Let's add the email service into it because finally I have the latest version of PHP there and I can use those shiny new <laughs> messenger components in Symfony. No, we said payments only. They need to create their own and they need to learn how to do that. Because this that... is the reason why I still prefer microservices over the modular monolith, just to say Absolutely. it again. Absolutely. Because you mentioned just the discipline problem. We yes. all imagine ourselves we are disciplined people. No, we aren't. We are humans, we are not disciplined. We are from time to time disciplined, but we always get into the resistance mode. And uh, yeah, this discipline is, is, discipline is what you need in absence of inspiration. 
So when you're not inspired to split it up, yeah, in this the first is a place, fluctuation. You know? It is a fluctuation, and it requires energy. Mm-hmm. Inspiration is effortless. Discipline requires energy. It requires conscious will, and that has that is draining your battery, whereas inspiration fills your battery. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's really important that somebody on the team will be excited about modernization. Everybody else won't. Yeah. So they will want to tack on to the person who is most excited and put everything into their service. And that okay. will create another monolith if you allow it. So it's really important to not allow that to happen. I want to quickly intervene because we are now one hour and 45 minutes. We are basically <laughs> through a little late, but we are through the two segments. And I think it was very insightful. Um, I learned as well a lot, to be honest, because your perspective is a little bit different or experienced than mine was. It was quite interesting. So we have still have an open segment of some minutes. So if you guys have any more questions, feel free to ask them now. We will definitely answer them. Yeah. And maybe maybe in the chat, but I, as far as I can see, we don't have any more questions so far. No. We missed a question from Thomas. He asked a question about... The differences in mentality regarding backend versus frontend thinking. In... And can, do you see this? Can you? Yeah. I, I can't see it in StreamYard, but I just saw it in. So can you repeat original. the question, please? Yeah. So, Camila, yeah, do, do, do you see it? No, no, I can't see it. I'm so afraid I can't see it. Did you experience differences in migrating legacy systems in backend and frontend? Differences in terms of how your process is. Backend yeah. thinking and frontend thinking, for example, Java back and React front is extreme difference in, in my yes. view. I would like to, to say something about that. It's when we started with the first migration project, it was the largest one we had. We started off with the Federator, as we said that, with our new mm-hmm. target. And then we basically de- renewed as first the entire frontend. Yeah. And we basically, what we did was... We, uh, we implemented an API gateway, which was the only piece in the backend. It was a microservice, actually, which was working together with an Nginx as the API gateway, which basically was the federator as well. Yeah. And we basically put the entire legacy system into a private network, which was not exposed anymore, but the federator could still uh, use it as an upstream target. And so we basically, yeah, put that into some kind of hibernation state. So it was still working, but uh, wasn't actively doing something on the internet anymore. And the new, let's say, frontend was step-by-step migrated with micro frontends into the newer version. Uh, It was like um, the new frontend was a React frontend. And we basically implemented with iframes. It was a pretty simple thing. Uh, We Mm -hmm. implemented some old behavior because it wasn't... uh, possible because of the old structure of this PHP stuff and C-sharp stuff. We had uh, three sessions, which we need to, uh, let's say, synchronize with JWT states and all this kind of stuff. But finally, we made it. So basically, the front end, just to ask the question, was an entire different approach than the back end migration. And we tried to do that one after another. There are other ways as well you can do, but we prefer to do it one after another because the front end is more like controlling what mm-hmm. to ask. There's not only the federator, like the Nginx, it's all it's as well the front end. What mm-hmm. happens when you click on a button? This is often decided or directed already by the front end. So this is my point of view there. Would you agree? I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a the, the biggest problem with these kinds of Strength, strength, strength operations is when there is some 
bleed over in architecture into one of the systems. Mm -hmm. For example, in in a typical, let's say, C sharp and React. In a, in that kind of system, it is possible that the C sharp project owns the front end and builds it and deploys it in one artifact. So if you're splitting that mm -hmm. system apart, it's possible that there still remains a main system that builds the front end, but then there's now new microservices which don't know about the front end. If you start splitting it apart, right? So it's possible that they are using some solutions there mm -hmm. to highlight some DTOs and that those are now hard to synchronize just from mm -hmm. a purely tactical mechanical perspective. From the other side, it can also happen. I saw the inverse also be true where you have this for example, a Django, Ruby on Rails, or Symfony project where state is being managed on the server. Mm -hmm. So the sessions, the sessions, any kind of storage, any kind of persistent state of the request handling mechanism itself is using state on the server itself. So like local file, Symfony by default saves sessions in the local file system or Redis. Then you have to configure it. But a lot of systems have caches locally, and that is also a problem. Because then you have this issue of the front end cannot be decoupled from the back end because there are there is compute, there are if statements about how it is rendered based on the state that lives on the back end. So usually this is a more traditional type of system, mm -hmm. more more templating kind of system, less so single page application. But it is still the most dominant form of application on the web because it creates this problem of the backend system knows so much about the front end that it is actually the main, the front end is actually the main application that we need to split apart. But most of the domain terminology is in the backend system. That was the case in our case, actually. And that's very difficult hmm. because then it requires intense collaboration between the backend and front-end team while you are splitting them apart. And, and that creates very hard to navigate opposing forces. Because really what you shouldn't be doing is say, I will split the backend away from the front-end. That is not a good solution if everything is coupled. Because the only way forward here to say, I will now create a front-end that is not coupled to the backend. If you've never done that before, then there's no hope for you in trying to achieve full backend frontend separation, right? So rather than thinking about it as backend and frontend, think about it like I have this one settings page somewhere. I will decouple this first. So I will decouple this settings page from the rest of the frontend so that then when it's decoupled from the rest of the frontend, this mm -hmm. now becomes micro frontend. And then only this thing as a prototype to build the team, the confidence of the team, I will then handle different kind of session management, different kind of state management with the old or with a newer kind of backend, maybe a modern, a, a gradually modernized, continuously modernized system, and then make that part of the same deployment artifact without negatively affecting the old system. And that is a very mature approach. And, and that, that can be very simple, but it's possible that you just have a mess on your hands. That everything is coupled. You don't need to go far. It, it can just be, mm -hmm one little pop-up, one menu item that has like a little drop-down and then it can it has to render correctly over some charting plugin. And already that overlapping of canvases and overlapping of the, the real estate of the application 
that already creates a mess. There is a reason while Spotify, for example, which is a very good micro front end uh, example, there's a reason there are there is nothing with a tooltip on the left menu bar. Because the tooltip, the tooltips would breach encapsulation on that mm. bar of the canvas. But that is a deliberate choice, and the designer has to be aware of that. Yeah. But, but the architecture is a completely tactical decision. And usually it's that communication that doesn't happen. And then it's these little clumsy little design decisions of oh, if you hover over this, there'll be like a really nice and sexy tooltip moving with your mouse, but now it's now I can't use I can't use an iframe, I can't use this, I can't use a scroll bar, I can't fake it, I can't separate them apart. Because the user will see that there is a hard cutoff point mm -hmm. because between one application and the other. But we can say what we've described in common was that you need to be your target need to be separated. So what you shouldn't do is if you would if you had let's say a monolithic type where the backend was creating the front end mm -hmm. and the front end was only the view of the backend. This cannot be the same in the new destination. Correct. It has to be asymmetric. Like it has exactly. to be completely different. Yeah, exactly. And basically, and this is, was our approach as well. We had then the new version and the old stuff was untouched, displayed into the new one. And there were only some stuff like the session management needs to be synchronized somehow in the backend to make yeah. this work. That's, that's usually number problem number one. That's it, on, on every strangling thick yeah. effort that I do. It's Dennis, my sessions don't synchronize. I'm yeah, not logged in horrible. anymore. It, it was horrible for us. It was basically an ASP.NET session, uh, which... Uh, PHP session was already synchronized with that one because yeah. it was on the same server when the IIS server was handling basically both um, environments in, in the same website. And then we came up with a new JWT and the JWT yeah. session expiration and stuff like that needed to, let's say, the, the ongoing ASP.NET um, yeah. sessions with, with just some hours. You needed to get this done and working properly in the front end. Uh, but as soon as that was done, you really could... Uh, migrate one page after another and you could really see that there on some point there's basically no old uh, page anymore and this is actually quite uh, let's say motivating to see because it's very liberating it's very yeah, liberating and, and you keep the spirit yeah. and you keep the spirit because you don't build it somewhere else with another team with another yeah. product owner something like that it is those are the same people working on that yeah, so, you, gave um, the, you inspired the team mm -hmm. to finally confront the thing that they were avoiding Exactly. And, and they could take the lesson with them to heart. Like you didn't say, oh, our team constantly complains about this. Nobody wants to work on it. So I'll outsource it. That's the <laughs> worst thing. Because then the people you've outsourced to, they now understand the system much better than your, your hardworking, high paid, paid uh, engineers do. Okay. It's about product knowledge. So we have two more minutes. So last questions from my side now. Would someone in the audience or some of people in the audience would be interested more into the, the, let's say, the targets we described? We would be interested to, to talk a little bit more about the idea of platform as a service, to keep it simple because the main audience is small to medium-sized businesses and uh, how to keep it simple, how to be... There's a lot of platform engineering versus DevOps talk about there. And uh, we see just several companies doing the prop, doing the, the mistake that they actually, you know, creating themselves unnecessary challenges with complex infrastructure as a service. Man, even if you go for managed Kubernetes, it's still too complicated for you. Mm -hmm. And you will see the difference when we would show you what PaaS actually is and that this is actually a developer-orientated form of orchestration with everything inside from logging, 
um, networking, everything inside there, even repositories, pipelining, everything inside there. Is, if, if anybody is interested, please provide us feedback, put it in the comments, telling us we are planning to do something about that. Exactly. So we are actually through time and the, the agenda. We have no more questions, so I would like to wrap it up now. We had a great session, a really great session, a session I have to say. Good questions, great questions. And uh, yes, I think that was a good start. As I said before, we will do this weekly now. So in basically weekly, this specific City of Fellow stream, Dennis is doing his stream weekly as well on Thursday. We're doing it on Wednesday. And every week we switch into another stream yeah. and play a little bit with the other stream buttons there. And <laughs> exactly. we're, we're exploring because we we're don't want to put that. all eggs in one basket. We, You and I started off doing things my way as I was experimenting and we're just parallelizing the amount of changes we're exactly. doing in the types of content. And as we said, we want to create an, a community and audience that we currently know each other when you see people commenting. And this is our goal. So feel free to engage. We are happy to be engaged in the comments on the posts. There will be a follow-up article from my side as well about this specific topic now. Everything mm -hmm. I got on the posts, on the polls today, the feedback, what Dennis said, what Kamina said, and I put it into an article on my blog tomorrow. So you can find it tomorrow. And there is the blog of Dennis as well. And he said already he will assemble a post as well, but it's, yeah. it will be about his topic of this week. I really recommend for anyone who was not on, but I think as far as I see the audience, it's a, it's a common audience today. Yeah. So yeah, happy about that, actually. Me too. Me too. It's like, it's lovely seeing the same faces and with a few Thank new you. So voices. everyone provide us feedback. We want to know uh, not how we performed. It was like, was it valuable for you? What could we do better? What would be interesting for you? Those questions are actually bothering us. And yes, that's actually from my side. Last thing being uh, is next week, the topic. Okay. Your side. So. Thank you all for attending. Like this was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed just not having to control the studio for one. <laughs> I, could just, I could just babble on. I would, for anybody in the audience who is ready for a challenge, a bold ask. If you want some free coaching, we did just discuss the Strangler Fig. If you mm -hmm. want free strategy technology advice, especially if you're dealing with a situation like this, if you were to send us your situation, perhaps even join us on stage, or if you can just talk to you privately and then present our, let's say, advice or strategy to you on stream, I think that would be a good start to have the, uh, to, to increase, the, let's say, the level of commitment that we can offer to, the, to our audiences and actually make it actionable, particularly for, for your problems that you're having. Uh, so that would be my offer and my ask. If you have if you're willing to come on stream or just to talk about your tech problem or your tech debt problem or your tech technology frustrations, then we can solve it, what we discussed today. We would love to dedicate an episode for you, either on my stream or Adriana. And I both. We have or enough space. Yeah. If we're going weekly, we, we're talking about over 100 streams for 2024. So Don't there's a lot of room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's great. Okay. Camila, anything from your side? Thank you so much for joining. And please also let us know any other topics that you would like to hear or anything also related. As Adrian said, we have next week well-being. And I think this is something very important for any level or people just joining. So yeah, keep in touch. Mm -hmm. 
And don't forget, we don't only want to have, let's say, the high-level CTO architectural stuff. We want to cover everything from junior developer uh, up to the CTO level. We want even those topics like today should be understandable for yeah. everyone. This is the reason why we don't go with complex diagrams. Okay. Uh, we talk about this and try to translate it into a common language and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so thank you very much and uh, have a nice evening. See you next time. Bye-bye. See you next time. Ciao.